Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ's culture and the church. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm joined here in the studio today with my co-host, Stephen. Hello, everyone. And Morgan. What's up, guys? And our special guest, Mr. Timothy Reagan. What's up? Good to be here. Hey, guys. We're glad that you've joined us today for Where We Land. We're talking about that the struggle is real. What we're doing is we're talking about adolescent mental and emotional health today. So we hope you join us for the full discussion ahead. Man, guys, it's great to have Tim here in the studio with us this morning. Uh, Tim, we're just glad to have you here. I know you're a listener, but you're also, you know, a fellow friend in ministry. And uh, Tim serves as, well, I'll, let, I'll just let you share this morning. Why don't you tell us a little about who you are and what it is you do? Oh, man. Okay. Um, a little about what I do. So um, I'm the student ministries pastor at Shenandoah Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. I'm also the campus pastor of our school ministry, Roanoke Valley Christian Schools. And so uh, there's there's a lot that, that comes with that, and uh, I wear a lot of hats, and depending on the day, um, uh, it's a very church-heavy schedule or a very school-heavy schedule, or both, um, but uh, it's, a, it's a vast ministry, and I'm able to uh, influence the lives of a lot of different students uh, who come from a lot of different backgrounds, and that's been a huge blessing, and Aaron and I go way back. I was going to say, it goes all the way back to first That's semester right. Greek in college, man. That's right. You were my study buddy. We did. We suffered <laughs> together. the house, yeah. We suffered together daily uh, studying Greek with our little note cards back when uh, Aaron used to be called Manny, and uh, nobody calls him that <laughs> anymore. Let's bring We need to bring that back. I second the motion. <laughs> it needs to be brought back. I say that we bring it back starting on the podcast, Hey, Morgan. why not? <laughs> all good things start here. alias on the podcast, <laughs> Manny. <laughs> I mean, y'all call Morgan Mo on the podcast, which well, I mean, that's know. Also... Oh, we need to yeah. get an M name for Steven then. Well, you know, this is like yeah. Manny Mo and something I don't like have an M in I don't my know. name. I, just, so no. I, don't I think, think that we that could works. do this. I think if we tried hard enough, we could. But I think you're being too <laughs> too much of a Baptist pastor. If, I know there, if you want my opinion, must <laughs> alliterate. Uh, oh, but gosh. it is good to have Tim with us. And actually, you know, like Tim was saying, we do go way back, him and I. But then, even since we've been in Roanoke, I think you've been there at Shenandoah quite a while now, haven't you, on staff? Yeah, so I've been on staff for uh, nine years, either on the school staff or on the church staff, and I'm headed now into uh, what is year eight about of uh, of pastoral ministry on the student ministry side of being at one church, which has been just a huge blessing. And you see so much fruit when you're able to stay in that long uh, at one ministry. Yeah, certainly. Well, you know, Tim has just a great heart for students, and I think as we talk on the podcast today about this this really kind of a problem that seems to be facing our nation today. Uh, I think you'll hear, uh, you know, Tim's heart uh, in all of that. And so let me guys just kind of ask you guys the question, you know, as we think about talking about adolescent mental and emotional health today, uh, what is the problem? I mean, maybe I should pitch that to Stephen or, or Tim. What What is the problem that we see happening today? Well, I think that you see if you're just willing to look with an open eye, I think you're willing to see that adolescents, teenagers, whatever you want to call them, they are struggling. Um, They're struggling a lot. And I think sometimes right now there's this tendency to push back from whether it be parents, culture, grandparents, and they want to just say, well, they aren't struggling as much as they're just lazy, you know, or maybe it's, it's the fact that they just aren't doing anything at school. They're just taking the year off. And uh, we want to give all these 
ideas that we have and put them on them. But we have to admit that there is a problem. There is a struggle. And um, you you don't even need to go any farther than just talk to them, right? Like we we have some stats, I think, that we're going to share in a moment. But yeah. I, I would yeah. say that even before looking at stats, if you just talk to teenagers in your church and if they have an honest conversation with you and you have an honest conversation with them, you will find out very quickly that there's a lot of struggles right now in their lives. Which I guess my question would be then like the question that maybe other people have in mind. And is that, is that just a COVID thing? Like, is it because of the pandemic this year, feeling isolated, not being around friends? I mean, the challenges with that, do you think that has contributed to it at all? I think that exposes the issue. Mm-hmm. So you, you talk about the, the, the illustration of the tea bag, right? The tea bag goes into the hot water and then what's in the tea bag comes out. Uh, that, that's what COVID has done for a lot of people, but especially teenagers, um, because what you realize with most teenagers is that um, you're either experiencing on the outside looking in, you're either experiencing emotional deadness from them, you know, just kind of like the the blank face and like, oh, I'm fine. It doesn't matter. Everything. I'm, I'm fine. It I don't care. Or you experience emotional overexertion mm-hmm. where they explode over strange things, you know, ask them to take out the trash and they, they, it's a screaming fight, you know, like why? Um, and, and so there's that release of emotion that has to take place and and COVID really did that and showed us that. And it showed us that we have not, I don't place this on the teenagers. Um, I'm placing this on, on those of us who are right above them, the generation above them. We have not instilled in them the quality of resiliency. Hmm. And now, so what do you mean by that? Now we're paying for it. Um, (laughs) uh, resiliency in terms of just, just the ability to bounce back. Um, I told the the class of 2020 last year, um, I told them that uh, I remember hearing the story of my my grandpa, Eddie Childress, who uh, graduated um, from high school in this area uh, at 17 years old. He walked off his graduation stage and uh, went and volunteered for the army because it was in the middle of World War II. Hmm. And, I mean, and that's what they all did. That's what all those guys did. Because they were like, it's time. And there was just a resiliency about what we call the, the greatest generation yeah, right, now, right. you know, because they came through hardship. They, they, they grew up through the depression and things like that. And so they learned that resiliency. They saw hardship and they said, okay, let's go to work. And we have made life so comfortable hmm. for teenagers and we have so insulated our students from any problems in life that when they experienced a problem that finally affected them, they didn't know what to do. It seems so much greater than them and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, challenging. So when we think about, you know, adolescent mental and emotional health, I think this is not just a problem that, and I think you guys are right. I think if, if people have teenagers, no teenagers or around teenagers today, certainly you can probably look at a a number of instances where, where you see this or, or, or the manifestations of maybe the the problem that is that exists today. Um, but I, I found a, I found a stat from the U S center of disease and global prevention. And this is what they cited. They cited that from April through October of 2020, the proportion of students, children between the ages of five and 11 visiting the emergency department because of a mental health crisis climbed 24% 
compared to the same time period in 2019. And then among students 12 to 17, the number increased by 31% last year. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think the pandemic definitely exasperated the issue. I love the um, illustration used of the tea bag, but I do believe that this issue has been here all along. Um, you look at surveys cited by um, NIH, the National Institute of Health, and specifically their mental health wing. Um, and you see stats like back in 2017, they gave a stat that they did a research in between the ages of 12 and 17, 9.4% of that um, number of the population of ages 12 through 17 in the United States, 9.4% had at least one major depressive um, episode in that year. And that's like a pretty big, I mean, that's almost one in every 10 students between that age had a major depressive episode. And then, I mean, you look even at a study that they had done over a course of, I think it was about like almost 15 to 20 years. And um, U.S. adolescent um, age students, 13 through 18, they said that around an estimated 31.9, basically 32%, had some type of anxiety disorder. And that's almost one in three. Right. So this was numbers from way before 2020. Right. And three three years at least before 2020. And you already see an issue there. And then the pandemic happens and isolation and everything along with the pandemic and isolation that came. And it's like you just have a massive perfect storm kind of scenario Mm -hmm. that just makes all the problems so much greater and it magnifies them. Yeah, certainly it did. And I think there is a lot of evidence to show that before even the pandemic, that mental health challenges and disorders and, and the things that students were facing existed even before that. I found, I found a, I found a, an interesting, an interesting thought that said that um, half of all cases of mental illness begin by the age of 14 half of all of them and that 75% of them begin by age 24, which tells you that, you know, when we think about mental illness in the country and the, the effects of, you know, mental illness and health, emotional health, all that to see all of that beginning in childhood, quite, quite, quite a majority of it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's hearing that statistic, it just reminds me how frustrated it makes me when um, people, you know, even in our generation or above us looking at um, the youth of today's society and they're like, what are they so stressed and worried about? They don't experience real. They don't know what real life is like yet. We hear that but, a lot, though, don't we? But I mean, so, it's so I mean, not we're probably true. guilty of even looking at I mean, the generation I, as me, well looking, and being like, yeah. well, wait, when I was a teenager, did we, you know, and I think that just gets compounded. Probably like Tim was saying, the further up the generations you go. What, what do you think, Tim? Yeah, I mean, go back to the illustration of what I was talking about. My grandpa lived in World War II. I mean, he lived in Boone's Mill, Virginia. And... Uh, I mean, he, he didn't know a whole lot about the world outside of Boone's Mill, Virginia. Think about how connected our students are. Mm-hmm. Think about how much information our students have. Um, that amount of information is overwhelming because what are they supposed to do with all of that? They, they know what's happening in every corner of the world at all times. And no one is preaching to them that it's good news. I mean, we, we know the, the general, you know, like gist of the news that you turn on the news, it's bad news. It's just mm-hmm. bad news after bad news after bad news. And it compounds because it's overwhelming to these guys. Um, they're just not equipped 
at this stage of life to handle that much bad news to be inundated with it. I mean, they're they're and they're getting their news from secondary and like tertiary sources too, because mm-hmm. you're looking at like social media being their news feeds, mm-hmm. and on top of receiving their news from these places, they're also receiving the opinions about the news from these places. Right. Because you have people, it's like celebrities, athletes who they follow on these these social sites who are telling them how to think about each of these issues. Mm-hmm. And so our students are not only receiving all of the information that exists around the world, but then they're being catechized by all of these other voices who are telling them every day, this is how you think, this is how you think, this is how you think, this is how you think. And uh, unless mom and dad are super active in responding and helping them respond and helping them understand how to respond, right? Uh, yeah, you're going to see that spiral because it's so overwhelming mm-hmm. because all they hear from the church more often than not, this is probably one of the biggest things we're guilty of, is we always tell them how hopeless the future is <laughs> and how like... Oh, like, you know, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, I mean, like, this is what the church in the older generations are constantly feeding them. Where is anybody giving them hope about their future? Yeah, Yeah. I was thinking about that the other day, even as just the broad church as a whole. You you think about in the early church, the tenor of the early church was not this fatalism doom of what is to come. But it is it was the victory that we have in Christ and the hope that we have in Christ. I mean, so many places in Scripture, you see how. Christians in Revelation are overcomers. You you see, you know, Paul talking to the church and he says, you know, Christ leads us in this triumphal procession. And so much of the language of the early church was the the, the language of victory, the language of hope, the language of, you know, overcoming. And yet I, I would say that's very different uh, from the tenor of the church today. And I, and I think, Tim, also you brought up something really important with social media. Not only is it informing their perspective on the world and events external to them, but they're also being informed on how they are to think about themselves based on these ridiculous, unrealistic standards um, that they see with influencers and, mm. and people who have just big names in TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. And so they have all of this crazy stuff happening in the world then they're trying to reconcile how does this how am i supposed to understand myself in light of all of these and my situation when i have all of these other people to compare myself with yeah and stats actually back up what you all are talking about um i believe it was byu brigham young university did a study over 10 years it's the longest study of its kind on how social media affects uh, adolescent students and um they came to the conclusion that specifically for girls And they said it was interesting that it didn't affect boys as much. And there's some debate there whether or not the boys were as honest about their issues (laughs) as as the uh, girls. So so, like there's some there's some interesting things to look into that study. But they unanimously came to the conclusion over a 10 year study that for girls who were students 13, I believe, through 18 or it was 12 through 18, um, who spent two to three hours a day on social media, it drastically increased their risk for suicide and suicidal Mm -hmm. behaviors. And one of the researchers said this, a 13-year-old girl is just not developmentally ready to deal with everything that social media can throw at you. All of the social comparisons and the feeling left out and the cyberbullying. And so these are, this is research that backs up the fact that social media, uh, like just complete unrestricted, access through a cell phone that you hold in your hand, it does have a massive impact on mental health and 
uh, risk for suicide. And yeah. so that's a problem. You know, I, I would agree with that. And I think one of the things that I came across this week as we were preparing for the episode was somebody who was an expert on mental health disorders and things that are happening in the country was talking about how long it takes for these issues to come to the surface. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think the number that was given was almost like 10 years. Like, mm -hmm. by the time you start to see a manifestation of these things that result in very destructive behavior, whether that is, you know, personal mutilation or or suicide or at, at its worst, right? So. It, the the thought was that it was like a 10 year progression from the time that that began in kind of that early, early adolescence until um, where you see, you know, the suicide statistics being what they are with young adults. So um, my question, I guess, would be this to you guys, especially Stephen and Tim, who are, you know, youth pastors, student pastors, like, what is your whole thoughts on this then personally? Like, because I think, you know, this is the generation that we're living in, right? So this is, um, you know, this is the day that God has called us to stand as Christians. So, I mean, what, I guess, what encouragement would you give to, to students, to families who already, I mean, they realize the, maybe they didn't realize, but you know, they hear the, the weight of all of these things. And then what would be the encouragement, I guess, that you would give to that? Well, yeah, I think, I think part of it is just being willing as a parent or a student to admit that there is an issue, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, we're going to talk about it a little bit more and how to address that later on as the episode moves along. But I think it's important to just be willing to admit that there's a problem. And sometimes that's not fun. And I know if you're a student right now and you're listening, you're probably like, I don't want to admit that there's an issue, right? <laughs> like, Cause mm -hmm. that's human nature. That's mm -hmm. not just a student thing. That's human nature. And I think it's being willing to admit that there's an issue, whether you are a student or a parent. And then the encouragement is that there is help. Um, God's word is still God's word. God is still God. And we, I, I personally have seen God change people's lives who have struggled with this even over the past year. Um, I would, I would say that like, even through the counseling and the working with students over the past year, which by the way, has increased and in not like double, triple yeah. or more, which you'd probably say the same Tim. Yeah. Um, God's still working in their lives though. And when you are willing to come to God with an open heart and an open mind and allow his word to work in your life and seek help, and, and we're not saying that it's just you, you can't seek any medical help or whatever if there's a specific um, issue going on. We're not saying that. But if you're willing to seek help from outside sources mm -hmm. and from specifically God and his word, help is there. And um, your life can change and it can get better. No, that's so good. That's good. What, Tim, what about you? What would you add to that? Well, I'd, I'd start with this, just bouncing off what Stephen said, that um, the struggles of this year has actually borne a lot of spiritual fruit. Um, at our school ministry, uh, we've had over 30 students uh, come to Christ for salvation oh, man, this year. Wow. And that's incredibly exciting. And it's not, and, and, and that's students of all ages, like from kindergarten all the way up to 12th graders. And I, I think that's a direct result of where of, of the hopelessness of the age. Hmm. They're looking for hope. And, and I'm telling you, you, you preach the hope of Jesus Christ long enough to the hopeless and they're, they're going to seek that out. And, and when they find the genuine hope of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, uh, it, it changes things massively. And that's been, that's been huge to see that. I also want to give hope though, to 
to those, whether it's a student who's sitting here listening, going like, oh my goodness, like I, I'm so broken. I have a mental health issue or something like that. Or a parent who's going, eh, I, I don't know that my kid has a mental health issue. Um, one of the things that we're going to talk about is that there is a difference between emotional distress and, and a mental health issue. Hmm. Uh, those are two different things. And, and, and emotional distress can lead to, unchecked, can lead to a mental health issue in the long term. But there there is a level kind of below a mental health issue. So we don't just jump straight from like, you know, happy kid living normal life to like, oh, man, he's like so like debilitatingly depressed. Hmm. You, you know, there, there's stages and steps that get there. But one of those things is the emotional distress that comes uh, in time. And so just being good stewards of our students' emotional health first, and that will help us so much more because dealing with emotional distress right. is so much easier. Well, and, and I think the evidence would support that, that yeah. there is these at least months, years of mm-hmm. progression of time where you're dealing in that emotional distress For before sure. it would really be maybe classified or labeled a mental health issue. So um, help us kind of de- define the differences between those two things. When we think about emotional distress or mental health, what what are the differences uh, between them? Sure. So let's use, again, another illustration and let, let's use an illustration of physical health. So. I would say emotional distress is like you rolled your ankle, okay? Um, you're probably not going to go to the doctor for that. You, you, you can walk it off, um, but you also can't leave it unchecked because you roll your ankle repeatedly. It, it's, you're going to have bigger issues. Sure. But I would say you know emotional distress is somewhere between a rolled ankle and maybe up to a sprained ankle because um, not every sprained ankle, you need to go to the doctor. The difference, though, is mental health and a mental health issue is you broke your leg Mm -hmm. and you're not just going to go home and sit down and wait for it to heal. Like you have to then at that point seek the intervention of a professional. And that's one of the careful balances that Stephen and I and everybody who works with students has to walk. You go, am I dealing with a rolled ankle or a broken leg? Right. Because I, I am honest enough to go. I'm not the guy to deal with your broken leg. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can help you with your rolled ankle. I can help you with your sprained ankle. But at the point where I look at it and I go, there's a broken leg here. I'm like, I think now you're looking at professional engagement mm-hmm. on like a weekly basis, maybe even uh, medication. Um, and, and it's not my job to diagnose mm-hmm. either, you know, praise God. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there, but, but there is that, that issue. And, and the, the verbiage that, that we use to, to help us understand that is a rolled ankle uh, affects my life, but I can keep going. Mm-hmm. A broken leg impedes my life. Like I, I look at a set of steps with a rolled ankle and it's annoying, but I'm like, I can go up and down steps. Steps with a broken leg. Yeah, different story. Yeah, it's like nearly impossible. So that's that's what we're looking at here with the difference between emotional distress and mental health. Both that's good. important, right? But can be handled differently. So when we think about that, then I mean, what 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 would be you know, what would you say then to a, a parent, right? That is is really you know they they're really concerned for their student, and they 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 see kind of this progression maybe in their student. Um, towards maybe some of these mental health things. So like at what point 
would you, I mean, cause I, I, I guess what I hear you say is like, definitely at one point it requires, you know, professional intervention, but would you say though, that at all points of that, it requires intervention of some kind? No, I, as far as professional, n- no. Um, I mean, optimally you want parental intervention as much as possible, sure, right? Right. right. <laughs> you know? I mean, but the thought is like, you just don't have like a sprained ankle and you're just going to yeah. keep going on with it yeah, exactly. and then hope it'll get better. I mean, they're, I mean, because I think there is an element where these things compound and it's never just one instance. I mean, it might be, but, but quite often there's a number of compounding things that, that bring somebody to a point like that. Yeah. You know, um, I have to be careful the way I word this, but, uh, I'll say this. If you have done a good job as a parent and you have been engaged like from day one, most of your teenagers need your empathy more than they need your instruction. Um, if you've been given, if you if you've been giving good instruction from day one, and your teen has been in the church, active in the church, you're active in the church, and you've been parenting biblically from day one, they know the right answer, but they want to know if they can trust you with what they're dealing with because they are mentally making that transition of they know that they used to be someone in your eyes who did almost no wrong. And I know we, we joke about like, Oh, like I don't think that about my kids. I have two toddlers. So like, I'm realistic. I, I know, I know that my kids do wrong. <laughs> so that, that's, that's not an issue, but there is that point of transition that happens where the stuff that they dealt with as a 10 year old, is not the stuff they're dealing with as a 12, 13 year old. And they want to know, mom, dad, can I trust you with what I'm dealing with? Mm-hmm. And can I trust you with the mistakes that I have made that you don't know about? How will you react? I find that most kids are more afraid of getting in trouble than they are of where the trouble will take them. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and, and that's so heartbreaking, you know, and, and, and I don't think it's a realistic view of their parents either, you yeah. know, because I think their parents would be much more gracious with them than what they realize. But they're so afraid of getting in trouble and they're so afraid of mom and dad or their youth pastor or whoever thinking differently about them right. and seeing them differently and blowing up an image that they think they've created. Right. That they're like, oh, man, I, I would rather just keep going down the path and maybe eventually I'll figure it out. Right. And, and often they don't. Well, because I, I heard this a while back that really, you know, rang with me was the thought that I can't remember the message that I was listening to, but, but the pastor basically ended up saying something like, you know, students today, if you ask the teenager, uh, do you know that your parents love you? Every one of them pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. by and large, would be like, oh yeah, mom and yeah. dad love me. Mom and dad love me. But like ask the same question turned a little different way. Like, does mom and dad like you? And then it's like, <laughs> and then yeah. it's like, you know, he was like the, the answers that I get. And when I, when I pull an audience like that is so, so vastly different. And I, I, when I hear you talk to him about, you know, can I trust mom and dad enough to open up about some of these things, things that I've messed up in, right. Mm-hmm. That ultimately by me talking about it is going to let them down. Yeah. You know, what is, what is the, what are the lines of communication there that are, 
that you have that open, honest, trusting communication to be able to work through some of those things. Yeah. And I think we're going to deal with this actually really specifically here in a little bit as we discuss addressing the problem from a parent's perspective. And um, this is so important what you guys are saying. Um, I remember, I don't know if anybody who's listening has ever heard of Kerry Schmidt, but he, he words it as a way of like for the first 12 to 13 years of a child's life, you are going after their heart and gaining their heart. And then you have to switch and it becomes a little bit different because because you're supposed to have their heart when they get into that teenage years. If you don't have their heart, then like, yes, you're instructing them for the first 13 years. And yes, there's I mean, even you said this to me, there's still a little bit of instruction and guidance that still happens. But the point is, once they get to a certain age, they're going to do what they want to do and they will find a way to do it with your blessing or without your blessing. And if you don't have their heart, there's no way for you to speak into that. So I think we're going to come back around to that here in a second. But I think for a teenager right now, when we're talking about why is this happening, I think you need to ask the questions that Tim um, asked earlier in his illustration. How How can I know if I'm in emotional distress or if I'm like seriously struggling with a mental health issue? I think you look at your life and you ask the question, is my life affected or is my life impeded? Uh, basically meaning what uh, and being honest too. meaning when I look at that set of stairs that um, illustrative um, stairs that we gave earlier am I able to still get up the stairs <laughs> or is it like next to impossible and it's going to ruin my life to get up the stairs meaning mm-hmm. on a daily basis to go to school to live life to do the things that you need to do is your life affected because affected is still a problem but it's not my life is completely impeded and there's no way for me to mm. get this done today. And I think that that is a honest question that needs to be asked by parents and students when they're going through this, instead of just slapping on a label of, well, I have a mental health issue and I'm in no way trying to like overstep my bounds and speak of that in a negative way. Cause there is serious mental health issues, mm. but it also does not help whenever you slap that on there without looking honestly at the problem and then also seeking some outside help and advice in that before just saying you have a mental health issue. Cause then that that's not very helpful for the student to hear that if they don't have one, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and going back to what we just said about um, the student is asking the question, can I trust mom and dad mm. and what do mom and dad think about me? And if your first response is, I think we need to go get you help. Uh, whew. You, you better make sure that you got that right before you said that. Um, because, man, if you took a big swing as a parent, as a youth pastor, anybody in leadership over students, that's a big swing you just took to say, I think we need to get you help. Um, that just became their identity. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, 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 and not because you, you meant it that way, but because the teenage brain is seeking identity. Um, and, and that just became who they are not something about them but just who they are the whole of their personhood in in your eyes yeah and i would also encourage too that when you do that you need to think through all of the things that might happen when you go to seek help you know like i've advised some parents before they'll ask you know like hey do you think my child needs help and first of all i'm like that's not my decision that's your decision as a parent But if you're asking my outside, just 20,000 foot opinion, um, I'll give them an opinion. But at the very end, I'll say, just so you know, if you seek these steps, I want you to be aware that certain things could happen if you seek outside help. Like 
they could assume an identity. Um, depending on how serious the issue is, you might not see your child for a little while, you know? And there's things like that I don't think people think through all the time and they just want to seek help out of good intentions, but then it ends up becoming a maybe a bigger issue down the road than it had to be when they could have looked at some of these things and thought through that. So um, I, I think that we have kind of talked about what is happening, you know, why is it happening and the difference between mental health and emotional distress. And I think we've reached a point where if you look at everything that we've discussed, you can at least admit there's a problem. Like, <laughs> look, at, look at culture, look at students' lives, talk honestly with them, look at the stats, listen to what we've said, and there's an issue. So I think we need to talk a little bit maybe about addressing the issue and how does that, how does that play out? So um, how are we going to address this, sh- this issue as students, as the church, and as parents? Well, I think a good place to start is with the students, you know, the people who are experiencing the heat of the struggle. Um, and I think what what's so important, um, speaking as someone who's just recently been in this life stage and has just, you know, moved beyond it as a college grad, um, there's, there's so much um, that you feel like you have responsibility for that you don't, and then the things you do have responsibility for, um, you have an urge to push off on something yeah, else. That's a good way to say it. And yeah. and it's it's and I I mean I get that pressure. I mean from the time you were fourteen, people are telling you you have to decide how your whole life is going to go. By a freshman year in high school, you have to know your ten year plan of where you're going to college, what you're going to do when you get out, you know when you want to get married. Like which always changes. It always changes. <laughs> you know, like had, had somebody asked me at each stage like that, it, it was always something crazy. But like there's there's so much pressure to have everything figured out that you need to let go of, huh. and there's there's this other responsibility that you need to focus on and that's your mind to embrace. Yeah. And, and, and there's so much going on in our brains that we don't think we have control over, but really, I mean, I think even scripture talks about this, you know, in in Romans 12 Mm. and it talks about be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm reading Jenny Allen's book, um, get out of your head right now. It is Mm. fantastic. It was recommended to be by a mentor of mine. Um, and I'm reading it with someone in my family who really struggles with anxiety. And there's just so much about, you know, the things that we allow into our minds. And, and I'm not saying that this is all in your head. <laughs> this is not all in your head. There are a lot of external factors. And like all of the, the things that Tim and Steven were talking about, it's um, in social work, we have this thing called an ecogram. And it just mm. shows you all the different mm. spheres of your life that mm-hmm. influence you, whether it's people, whether it's your job situation, school situation. But so much of that, we just let in and let it control us when that's not. It's not the case. Well, certainly not. And for the Christian, and if we come back to that truth of God's word, that God's word gives hope, mm-hmm. it, it, it produces real change with uh, real joy, then what you come back to as you read the New Testament letters especially, you see all of this emphasis on having a new identity, like what Tim was talking yeah. about. Like if the gospel speaks into your life to you allow your life not to be centered on the identity that you've built your, for, for yourself, but but you build your life on the rock and center your life on Christ, 
and and even so much of the New Testament letters, you know, Paul says in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ yes. Jesus. You know, we, he says in other places, uh, taking captive every thought into mm-hmm. obedience of Christ. So what you see in the New Testament as the gospel gets worked out in the life of an individual to give them a new identity, one of the things that also gives them is a new joy and a new mindset That's right. mm-hmm. and a new way of thinking. And so I think what you said was very true because I know when I spend time talking to, to young people today that a lot of them feel like... Like there is so much pressure, mm-hmm. so much weight, and yet mm-hmm. they're putting weight on themselves that isn't even meant to be mm-hmm. there. Like yeah. society's put it on them or, or whatever, you know, Instagram or whatever their world is that's put that pressure to have a certain expectation. Mm-hmm. And yet there are many things in their life that through the power of God, through the word of God, by the spirit of God, like they can embrace and with a new mindset, begin to see some real change in their life. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I wonder, is there a, is, is it, is it hard to see that sometimes maybe? Well, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember I was talking to a student once and I was talking to him about, cause they were struggling with anxiety and things like th- of that nature. And I just asked him, I was like, so like, what are you most anxious about? And they just like started t- talking about some things and they were like, well, you know, like I got to graduate. They're not a senior. Um, mm-hmm. I got to find a job. They're not a senior. I'm going to get married. You haven't even gotten into college yet. What is going on? And then like all these answers are things that it's like, okay, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's step back here like a few steps and let's think through, are these things, things I actually need to be stressing about? And it's not always that sometimes there is true things that, um, they are anxious over, but a lot of times these are things that we can build up. Um, and even that. that is in the gospels, you know, Jesus says, take no yeah. thought for tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, exactly. It's, it's having that mindset. So Tim, let me ask you then a question. How would you encourage a student to, to embrace that mindset, to kind of take that responsibility to minister to themselves in that way? One of the things that uh, I'm starting to say a lot more than I used to say is I'm starting to tell our students, remember that Jesus already lived this week perfectly in your shoes. In our circles, and by that I mean like conservative Baptist circles, cats, that's where we're kind of all from. And maybe not everybody listening is from that, but there has been a huge lifelong emphasis, and, and rightly so, on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. And then we woke up a little bit and realized it. Okay. Also though, the resurrection power of Jesus. Mm. Amen. We totally forgot about the perfect life lived by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, And because we forgot about that, we preached Jesus died for you. He rose again for you. You better measure up. But, but, but the problem is like, that's not what the Bible teaches you. It, it teaches you that you are so inept. <laughs> we are all so inept when it comes to living the perfect life required of us. Romans 3.23, we all fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's the right. standard. Perfection, right. holiness. So then Romans 6.23 comes around and left hook. So the wage is the payment for what you have done, i.e. not measuring up, is death. Mm. So Jesus comes and he fulfills the covenant God made with man. And he actually is the one man who upholds the marriage vows that God makes with man. And he lives the perfect life in our shoes. So he helps us check off requirement one, live the perfect life. Right. Requirement two, then pay for your sin. 
Jesus then, after living the perfect life, does not have to be punished for his sin, but voluntarily is punished for our sin. So we check off box two. And so the beauty of that is God sees Jesus when he looks at us, not us. If we ever think that God is looking at us, we are in big trouble. God is looking at Jesus and the accomplishments of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so helping students understand, helping all of us understand, good day, not just students, but especially students understand that you are not going to live the perfect life. So praise God, Jesus already did it for you in your shoes. And, And so we talk about the Sermon on the Mount and we look at Jesus saying, build your life on the rock, on himself. Right. Build the the house of your faith on the rock of Jesus. Why? Because building anywhere else is going to get washed away by the storms of life, by difficult times, by hard times. This is what's happening, right? He then doubles back on that thought in John 15 and says, now abide with me. In other words, live in the house. Mm-hmm. Live in the house built on Christ. And then all throughout the New Testament, they use this word edify or edification, which literally means build house. And, and so spiritual growth in terms of the New Testament is you're continually building on this house that was built on the foundation of Jesus. And if we live at the beach house, so to speak, we're in trouble. We get washed away by every hard thing that happens. But that's why we're called to abide, tabernacle, make our home in the house built on Jesus. And that's one of the big encouragements that I'm giving, not just to students, but, and to me, like, I need that. We all need that. But that's one of the big things that I want our students to hear on repeat. Man, that's really good because you're, you're hitting on the fact that we're embracing Christ's life and his perfect life, what he is, he has done in our place. You know, Mm -hmm. I think about what Paul says in Philippians. He says, he says, not that I am already obtained this or I'm already perfect. But Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right. Amen. You know, and it's that whole idea that if if Christ has achieved this for us, you know, and now through his grace, by faith, we live in light of that, that that there is that thing, I guess, for the teenager of, of, of being willing to say, hey, I'm not going to just be reactive to every single thing that happens in my life, but I want to begin to be proactive in embracing the mind of Christ and uh, that would be a great place to begin. That aspect of being reactive, though, just to give uh, the adults listening just a point of reference, part of that is their brain development. And so we talked about that set of st- the set of stairs earlier. That set of stairs is a real thing going on in our brain. There's the downstairs brain and the upstairs brain. The upstairs brain, which includes the prefrontal cortex right here behind your forehead, that is developing from the ages of 12 to 25, and it's not fully developed until 25, okay? So it's so undercooked. But the upstairs brain is what it really is. It really is. It's, but the upstairs brain, which includes that. So, so here's the functions of the upstairs brain real quick. First of all, it's the household of think before I act, okay? Body control, emotional control, decision-making, relationship building, empathy or others awareness and self-awareness. All that is housed in the part of the brain that teenagers, it's just yawning and waking up and stretching and going, oh, where am I? Okay, Mm -hmm. like that's, that's the part of the brain that houses all that. 
is just waking up. <laughs> so, and that's the part of life that these teens have the most problems with, and we wonder why. Right? I mean, it's their biology. It's their biology. Like, they, so to a certain extent, when you have a teenager and you go, what were you thinking? And he go, I don't know. I don't know. know. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> it is sin- it's sincere. It's sincere because the only thing that's developed for them is what's called their downstairs brain. And the downstairs brain is this. It's act before I think. And it's where mm-hmm. the amygdala is housed. And so this is where cortisol floods the system. Cortisol is the stress chemical of the body that shoots your body full of glucose and adrenaline so that you can escape death, okay? That's what cortisol does. It's the bang in the middle of the night, someone kicked down the door, you were dead asleep. How do you go from dead asleep to ready to fight for your life? Your body goes cortisol and shoots you full of it so that you can fight for your life. So here's the problem, these guys, teenagers their bodies are flooded with cortisol like all the time which is why they stay up until yeah. however many hours yeah. of the night they can't, sleep. they can't sleep they can't sleep and they're they're constantly in a stage of fight or flight which is why they're so aggressive at odd times or they run away from their problems i mean some students literally run away from their problems because their their brain is flooded with cortisol and that part of the brain only thinks about self-preservation mm. that's all it thinks about and so that's why teenagers have so little other's awareness at this stage of life when they're under stress because their their whole that whole part of their brain is just saying stay alive stay alive stay alive stay alive and I, there, there's so much of your body that shuts down hmm. when cortisol is flooding your body cuz cuz cortisol says in order to stay alive we need to steer energy away from some things into other things so hair growth stops so teens start experiencing hair loss and their hair starts falling out and they're like what is happening to me it's stress it there's their overload of stress they gain weight why their metabolism shuts off cortisol shuts off your metabolism completely it goes we don't need to metabolize food right now that's not important you know and then so what so then the teen goes i'm not hungry i'm not hungry i'm not hungry all the time uh-huh. and we get stressed out but it's their biology it's what's happening Right. And so, but I, I, hearing all that, it just brings us back to what we were talking a little bit earlier and saying, you know, I guess that's, that's the importance of needing to embrace the mind of Christ, right? Because like in our own nature, you know, we, we don't live in that reality, you know, but, 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 but Christ has made us his own. If, if by, um, repentance and faith, we've come to know Christ as, as savior and Lord. So there is that change that Jesus makes in our life. And I think we, every day of our life, from the time we're in adolescence uh, to even people listening who are, who are well beyond that now, right? There is that continual choice to live in the Christ life mm. of what Jesus has uh, made possible for us. So could we take the circle and widen it a little bit now and kind of come back, not just from looking at a teenager, but but what about those within the church today? How, how can the church come alongside to adolescents who are, are either struggling with mental health or maybe emotional distress? And what are some things that the, the church as a whole within that whole body, uh, specifically, you know, adult volunteers that are working with student ministries, what, what, what encouragement could we give to them? Yeah, I would say like, first of all, in the church context, um, yes, teens minister to yourselves, but church members, adult volunteers, be there for students in your church. Um, 
I and Tim and everybody at this table would probably agree, I hope, that um, parents are the number one guiding force in any child's life. And um, that's what we believe here. That's what we teach at our church. I know Tim teaches that and believes that. However, some students don't have parents, and I think we have to understand that. And then other students, their parents might not be Christians. They might not be supporting them in their walk with the Lord. Be present. I I think that we need to realize that in the church and say, hey, we need to be there for some of our students because youth pastors can't be there for every kid. Um, we want to help the ones who we can, and we want to be there for the ones that we can and that we can have relationships with. But when you have large youth groups, which yours is much larger than ours, and ours, though, would still be not very manageable because we would have probably, I'd say, 30 teens or so. You can't effectively minister to every single one of those with one person. Mm-hmm. Right? There needs to be other persons in the church who are willing to step forward and say, you know what? I would take time with a teenager. Yeah. I, I would have a couple of teen guys over to my house and split firewood with me. Amen. I would ha- I would take a couple of teen girls out with me and go grocery shopping Amen. and spend time with them. And the effect that that can have in their lives is literally insane. Even mm-hmm. for the ones that have parents, to have a godly adult who supports what their parents are telling them mm-hmm. at home, <laughs> home like yeah. literally that can be life-changing for a parent and for a teenager in this. So I would encourage you, um, be there for them, be empathetic, be willing to give a lending ear and be willing to disciple them and just take them into your life and be genuine with them. Yeah, and I I think it it takes a lot of um, looking outside of yourself because just, you know, it doesn't mean everything that an adult a volunteer or youth leader or whatever is dealing with suddenly just disappears hmm. but you have to it's so much of like the mantra that i hear on social media and see is like i just want to be seen i just want to be seen yeah. like i want somebody to see me well many people in the church you all probably do see the way these teens are struggling it's so much more to see and then go do something about it you know and it's harder and it's scary um i know before i started discipling um someone in our in our youth group uh i was terrified i was like I don't, I don't know what this looks like. I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, but really, it is just like what Stephen said. It's it's opening yourself up to be um, to have humility, to have empathy, and really, yes. and even though you know we as adults sometimes do know what they're going through on an intellectual level, we know the right answer to give them. Hold off on your right answer until yeah. you've sat with them through the hard thing, till yeah. you've cried with them, till you've been angry with them. Mm. But don't leave them there. Then take them up with you and say, I've walked through this too. And even if I haven't, the Lord has walked through this. So let's go see how he did it. And we're going to walk through this together. Yeah. Okay. So the the biological thing that you just talked about, like that's a real thing. So what you're saying about logic versus empathy. Empathy is the student is living in the downstairs brain. Logic is I as an adult, I'm living in the upstairs brain. Now think about someone in an, in the upstairs of a house yelling down to you in the downstairs and giving mm-hmm. you instructions. You're constantly like, what, what, what are you saying? What? Mm-hmm. It's so much better for the adult to walk down the stairs and in empathy, meet them in the basement, meet them in the downstairs brain and use these things we called IFAB statements, mm-hmm. IFAB statements. I feel blank about blank because Mm. blank. In other words, I feel sad about your breakup because I know how much they meant to you. 
Mm. Now here's the thing. Maybe I didn't even like the person they were dating. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I didn't even want them to date yet. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. But, yeah. but I will go down the stairs and in empathy go, I am so sorry. I feel so bad. I, I just, I mean, I, just, I feel so sad about your breakup. I, I know how much that, that meant to you. Because that is a empathetic connection point that now we can take them by the hand and we can lead them to the upstairs brain of logic mm-hmm. and then talk about the truth statements that lead us to the next actionable step in life. God does the same thing. And sometimes you'll yeah. circle back to the no, basement right, a few times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Might have to go oh, there yeah. a few times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at how often in scripture, God's, God backs up a promise just by saying, I am with you. Yeah. What is that? That is mm. empathy. That's what that is. That's God expressing empathy so that then he can lead us by the hand to the upstairs. And right. that's what Manny's been talking well, about, about the yeah. New Testament. <laughs> Manny, Manny, Manny. Manny. But, it is, but it is what Jesus did for us. I mean, in Philippians 2, like in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So, mm. you know, part of that descent into the basement to meet people where they are is is having the mind of Christ and uh, being willing to um, – exemplify you know his compassion and his heart um to to have somebody meet you where you're at so could we then talk a little bit now about parents because you know we would all agree around the table that parents are the greatest disciplers of their children Mm -hmm. um they should be the greatest disciplers and they they are the greatest influence but they always should be the greatest disciplers whether they are or not they always should be they According have the greatest influence, opportunity for influence, right? So, you know, there's a couple of those scriptures that really I find interesting. You know, out of all the things that Paul could have admonished the church, specifically to parents, to say about their parenting, one of the ways that he addresses it is uh, kind of mirrored in Colossians and in Ephesians. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, when he's talking to the family unit. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And Mm -hmm. then he mirrors that again in Ephesians chapter four, as he's really talking about the exact same thing in Ephesians six, I'm sorry, Ephesians six, verse four, he says it again. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So there's that word there that pops up a couple times about parents not to provoke what what does that mean yeah so the original word there in the greek is going to have this idea of to stir up um to arouse and then also kind of to embitter a a great illustration that was given was it's almost like this idea of challenging to a boxing match Mm. and i literally think of (laughs) sometimes sometimes when i just watch parents and their children i'm like they're putting their dukes up they're provoking that child you know (laughs) and what does it say though when you do challenge your children to a boxing match when you do provoke them when you do something that you know is going to incite anger in them what does it do it discourages them Hmm. it literally makes them discouraged because they're like oh man because how much better would it be to like what we were saying earlier enter down into their level and yeah. then bring them along and instruct them instead of meeting them where they are and yeah. saying, you know what, we're going to have this out right now mm-hmm. and I'm going to take you down mm-hmm. and I will win. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and students know that. Students know that ultimately mom and dad win the fight and mm-hmm. that's why they get frustrated and that's why they fight dirty when it comes to the fights. I mean, it, when a student gets in a fight, if you push it hard enough, you will hear, I hate you mm-hmm. uh, be, because th- they know I can't win 
I'll hurt you. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I feel bad for the student in that case because it's the only thing they've got when mom and dad go, okay, let's fight. Because the student knows, yeah, you're going to win. I live here. You pay my bills. All those things that we yell at them and go, you live in my house and I pay these bills. I'm like, they know that. They know <laughs> that. They're aware. That's why they're so angsty about the fight. And mm-hmm. also... That's why they're going to go date the person you don't want them to date. That's why they're going to go do the things you don't want them to do because they're like, here are the bullets in my gun mm-hmm. and I'm going to unload on you the way you unloaded on me. And so the anger of a parent only begets additional rebellion. It will not beget mm. obedience. Well, because that repeated ongoing treatment of provoking builds up within the child, right? This kind of deep-seated anger yep. that Paul talks about. And, and it or or it, it brings this resentment, right? So exactly, I think what you end up. You know, I know this is true for a lot of you know families that I've had opportunity to counsel with. Like, there's a resentment on the part of the student to the parents. Well, once again, they have a responsibility in all this. We're not. We're not. We're not. Sweeping right. that the under the rug. The student is not off the hook no, when they say sure, those things. Sure. No, not at all. But but I think but there is but there is a cause and effect in some of that, yeah. right, to a certain degree. What's well, understanding too, it's understanding that every child is different. So every family situation is different. So I can't do what so the other family did with their child. I have to know my student. Um if you don't yeah. know your child, you don't know how to reach them. And a lot of times whenever I get into a counseling situation with a parent and a student who are having it out. Generally, what I find out really quickly is not all the time, but generally they don't know each other. (laughs) They think they know each other, but they have not sat down in months, many times to just talk, to just say, you know what? How's your life going? What exactly is happening in your life that we, that I'm unaware of that I could help you with, you know, like things like that. And they're trying to do all these techniques and maneuvers that they read in a book somewhere <laughs> and they're not working. And they're like, why isn't it working? Well, cause you don't know your student. You don't know how to reach them. You know, let's take that word though, provoke in kind of it's etched, you know, color and, and then paint, you know, some colors into it to like, give it some feet. How, how, how do parents provoke their children? What are, what are some ways that, you know, that happens? Because I think there's a, sometimes there's a disconnect between just hearing that word and be like, you know, we think it's so heavy and so weighted and, you know, so aggressive. Whereas there are many ways that parents can provoke their children. One of the things that I thought about was overprotection, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, like it's this, it's this idea of, of smothering them and overly restricting what they can do, where they can go. And yet there has to be boundaries, right? There has mm-hmm. to be those, those principles that you're setting forward as a parent, but yet there can be a sense of overprotection that, that actually is a sense of provoke, provoking. The prefrontal cortex, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but it, it develops a lot through experience. You know, right. if, yeah. if the teens and kids aren't allowed to make, uh, they have to be allowed to make mistakes and, and they have to be put in situations where they can start to make those decisions. Yep. But that's not to say that the parent just, you know, abandons ship and is like a free for all. But yeah. what are some other ways? So, you know, overprotection. I think sometimes of the idea of um, trying to mold before trying to meet them where they are. Oh, yeah. uh, we like, for instance, like I'm, I'm going to fix this problem so that yeah, they're they, just focused on they the get home and I'm going to meet them where they are. And I'm going to say, hey, mm-hmm. I'm going to point you right in your face. And I'm going to tell you what you did wrong. And here's how we're going to fix it. Yeah. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm going to sit down with them, see how their day was see what's going on in their life, see what's behind this mistake, hear them out, listen to them. 
And then we can walk through this problem together Mm -hmm. and we're going to do so in a calm way instead of just trying to mold them instantly where they are. Because yes, as a, as a parent, you do want to guide and mold the life of your child. But like we said earlier, that should be done long before they're 15. <laughs> and then it's just kind of you're mending, right? Because they, they should be molded in the image of the Lord long before they're 15 and 16. And obviously that's a decision yeah. they have to make to trust the Lord, but at least knowing who the Lord is and knowing, mm. um, knowing who you are and knowing how you all are going to operate, they should know that long mm. before they're 16. But I think there's an element of of the, you know, focusing on trying to achieve something as a parent. Like, mm-hmm. I want you to be here. I want you to do that. You know, like mm-hmm. with failing to encourage. What about favoritism? What about favoritism? Well, it, provo- favoritism? It, provoked, um, it provoked Joseph's brothers, didn't it? Uh, yeah. yep. So I would say, yeah. And I would say Jacob and Esau, too. I mean, Jacob and Esau. What about Jacob and Esau? Yeah. So well, there's a lot of family dynamic when it comes to all these things, yeah. right? Like um, some parents would be like, oh, no, no, I don't have any favorites. Well, but think about it a different way. How often do you compare one of your children to another one, Mm-mm. right? Why and couldn't it, you, know, you be like, or in an like, effort to whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Think, even if it's even if it's like even subtle. if it's subliminal. Yeah, yeah. Like there's all there's always going to be something that you could probably point to in a way that you are provoking your child. I, I think if we're honest, if we're honest and we say, is there at least one way, maybe whether it's doing something that annoys them, you know, like mm-hmm. what is it that would provoke them? And this passage says, don't challenge them. Don't incite them. Don't do things that, you know, are going to provoke them. Instead, try to meet them where they are and then lift them up. And yes, don't leave them where they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Bible meet them where they are. Bring them up. Yeah, right. I mean, there's a good <laughs> form of provoking. And discipline want, and instruction. You want to in stir them up to good works instead of anger yeah. and stir them up to, to have the desire to know the stir stir them up to want to know the Lord more you know that provoking is not only a bad thing yeah um, you should do the good I kind like of that provoking. you bring that up I yeah. like that you bring that up because too often we're focused on the negative type of provoking and it's like no stir up get your child stirred up about the right things you know because mm-hmm. like what you had said earlier they do have so much adrenaline run through their body get yep. them stirred up on something that's good and when yeah. you do they're not going to let their teeth out of it. I mean, that's yeah. how teenagers are. When yeah. they get locked in on something, man, you don't want to stand in their way because <laughs> yep. they are going to go after it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think we've seen a lot of this. What are some though, like just some really quick principles that we could give to parents as far as just like encouragement of saying, you know what, instead of provoking them negatively, right. how do you stir them up positively? Yeah, no, I agree. Because, you know, we're almost out of time today. So wh- why don't we do it this way? Why don't we just go around the table here and everybody share, um, you know, kind of a kind of where you land. Come, come uh, where, where do you come away from mm-hmm. this discussion with? And uh, both in what Stephen was saying through a so maybe some godly principles, but also maybe just some takeaways from from our discussion today. Morgan, why don't we start with you? Um, and then Stephen, and then me, and then Tim. Sure. How's that? Yeah, so uh, jumping I, <laughs> we're jumping around the table. Um, I feel the least equipped to talk to parents because I'm not at that stage of life yet. Um, I am a member of the church, but I would like to just speak to the teens who are listening to this um, that, you know, I think something so important to realize is that you have so many choices when you feel like you have none. Um, sometimes you feel like your parents are deciding your life for you. Your school is deciding your life for you. You have so many choices and you have the awesome responsibility of making the best ones you can. Um, and, and this is, and this goes with choosing how you think, um, Jenny Allen, her book again is amazing. Go read it. She says, you have a choice. Every spiral, 
Every spiral can be interrupted. No fixation exists outside of God's long-armed reach because we are a new creation. We have a choice. So this goes for your thought process and what you fill your mind with, but this also goes with what you do with that. Please, teens, make the choice to open up. The more you bottle up Mm. all of your anxieties, even though you feel like the whole world's feeling it, doesn't mean you have to keep it to yourself. Um, And as much as your parents or other members of your church or friends want to help you, they still can't read your mind. And it is so important to find somebody safe. You don't have to open up and and explode with everybody, but you can have one or two people who you really just are Mm. able to, you know, emotionally word vomit. And and they can help you clean it up, you know? And I just want to, like, though you can find a a family member or a friend who can do this for you, try to find someone who's older and past the stage of life you're in. Because they can meet you and help guide you instead of just being stuck in the dark together. But the one who does this best is Jesus himself. And for sake of sounding trite, um, even in Hebrews this morning as I was reading, Chapter two, it says, therefore, he, Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Mm. Jesus was like you in every way. He was a teenager. He knows what it's like. So run to him. Don't don't run away from him because he's not expecting perfection of you. He just wants to love you and do life with you because he's already done it perfectly and he just wants to show you the way. That's good. That's yeah. good. Stephen, what would you add to that? I think as you seek to love your child, I would just give you three quick encouragements um, to parents as we kind of, uh, you dealt with the teens, I'll deal with the parents, right? <laughs> and um, well, I'll deal with the church. That's right. Too. That's <laughs> right. Tim can have the total uh, wrap up, but just three quick principles on how to love your child. First would be to listen actively. Um, instead of lashing out or instead of um, trying to fix them all the time, listen actively to them and try and hear who they are, hear where they are and know them. And uh, then also live genuinely. Like when you mess mm. up, be willing to admit it. Because mm-hmm. um, like when you don't admit it, then it's like they know that you're not perfect, but then they're just like, okay, why aren't they willing to admit when they mess up, mm-hmm. right? So like admit it to them when you mess up. Admit it to, to them when you mess up on something that you did for them or with them. Mm. Like, hey man, I don't know, but that punishment that I gave out, it just was a terrible idea, right? Like be honest with them, like like open up with it. And then also shepherd carefully. And uh, the reason I put that in there is because when you look in scripture at how leaders and parents and people that God puts in authority over places, this idea of shepherding is a constant theme through scripture. One who leads, feeds, protects, and disciplines. But if you look at a shepherd, they shepherd lambs a whole lot differently than they do grown-up sheep. And you have to know where your child is. And if you're trying to shepherd a grown-up sheep like a lamb, you're going to have a whole lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a whole lot of butting heads. And there's going to be a whole lot of issues. So I would encourage you, as, as the child grows older, learn how to shepherd them in the stage they are in. And go to God's Word. And ultimately, love on them and show them the gospel through your everyday life. Oh, that's good, Tim. Oh, Steven. I'll give you credit, Tim. You can that, have all was, the credit that for that. Awkward. <laughs> no, that was. And I would just, I guess my takeaway would be for the church here. Um, you guys have already spoken to the others. Um, when I think about the church, I think about a beautiful picture of a living body, a living building that is being built up by Jesus Christ. And if the gospel is at the center of the church, uh, and the church is living based in that 
truth and that reality, then a church is going to have a number of different people from many walks of life, from many different experiences, through from many different generations. And I think the encouragement here is that if you are dealing with emotional distress or even mental um, challenges of, of, of things that, that you're facing, there are many people in the body of Christ who have probably walked those places before. And you may not have had, you know, the greatest parent, or you may not even have a parent, but within the church of God, uh, there can be spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers for you. And so I think it's reaching out um, within that body that you're a part of and and building some relationships outside of your family, like Stephen was talking about earlier, to find some spiritual mentors of people that may not even call it that, but but you know that, that that relationship, that dynamic you have with them is one that is built on just a genuine love and trust uh, to where you know that they have your well-being at heart and they as a spiritual mother and father want to kind of come around and, and encourage you. So I think uh, that would be my encouragement to the church. Tim, you take us home here today. Awesome. I'm going to give one uh, brief summary point for each. For students, uh, we actually have the outline of a perfect teenager at the end of Luke chapter 2. And so I just want to give you real quick, at the end of Luke 2, what a perfect teenager looks like. Jesus studied the scripture to understand it. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus loved going about the business of his father. He was on mission. And Jesus submitted to his authorities. Mm. That's what a perfect teenager looks like, <laughs> according to scripture. That's who Jesus was as a teenager. Um, and guys, you're not. And so it's good news that Jesus already lived that life perfectly on your behalf. And so we want to help you, though, grow to look more like that mm-hmm. as much as possible because we love you. Uh, to the parents, um, I would say this. Be willing to lay aside your pride in this way. We know your kids are not perfect. We already know it. Don't try to protect the reputation of your students publicly. And, and in so doing, you don't say anything about their, what they're struggling with. Mm. We, we all know teenagers aren't perfect. There's not a single perfect teenager out there since Jesus. So parents, allow us to invest in your very imperfect teenager. Don't wait for them to get their act together before you allow others to pour into their lives. And parents... They're at a stage in their biology where they are willing to fight with you. So lay aside your pride in this way and allow them to idolize other adults for a season of life. They will come back around. They absolutely will. They will. Um, But only if you will let them go enough to let them idolize other great adults. And go to other adults and ask for their help. And say, don't don't let my kid know I did this, but could you please invest some time in my son or daughter? Um, it's it's well worth the investment to do that. It's good. And to the church, be the kinds of people who will become the dedicated fan of a teenager who is not your own. Teenagers need dedicated fans who are outside of their family. That's good. And that is something that the church can do in a massive way. 
while they're at that point where they are naturally fighting with their parents, <laughs> you can become that person in their lives until it's time. And then they kind of like a satellite going around the moon, they circle back and all of a sudden <laughs> come back to mom and dad. But you can be that bridge in the meantime. Man, that's good. That's really good. Well, guys, I've enjoyed being with all you guys this morning. It's so good to have Tim here with us today on the podcast. Tim, thanks for coming out and being with us. And we hope you'll join us here next time on Where We Land. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Where We Land, Christ, Culture, and the Church. Listen, we are so glad to have you with us today on the podcast. We trust that what we've talked about has been an encouragement to you. And we would love to connect with you on our social media platforms. So find us on Facebook by looking up Where We Land or visit us on our website at wherewelandland.org. We'll look forward to seeing you here next time. Bye-bye.